Welcome to the Geeky Medics podcast, where I interview interesting doctors and healthcare professionals from a range of backgrounds. This episode will take a slightly different format, primarily aiming to give those of you who are about to start your foundation years a bit of insight and advice about starting the job. Today we're joined by four foundation year one doctors from across the country, all here to give their pearls of wisdom to those of us who are about to be thrown into doctoring a little bit earlier than we expected. We'll talk about everything from prioritising jobs on call, surviving ward rounds and maintaining a good work-life balance. So let's get cracking. Hi, my name's Elgin. I'm currently an F1 at uh, North East and Hartlepool Trust. I'm Kitty. I'm an academic foundation doctor at Bolton. So my name's Edwin. I'm an academic F1 based in Ipswich Hospital. Hello, my name is Jess. Uh, I'm currently an F1 in the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Kings Lynn. So starting with Kitty, are you enjoying the job? It's mainly been really good, actually. Um, for me, it was definitely really nice to feel part of the team. As a med student, a lot of the time, I felt quite in the way and sort of like I was using up other people's time. So actually being useful and being wanted to be there hmm. and being on placement for more than, you know, two weeks or whatever has been really nice. Yes, uh, absolutely. It, it's it's terrifying. I, I was absolutely terrified at the start, um, but I, I'm absolutely, I, I wouldn't change it for the world. Absolutely. It's such an incredible job and I, I, I'm happy to go to work. I'm happy leaving work and... I, I can't imagine any other job that give me a smile on my face like this. In contrast, what did the doctors think was the worst part of their job? Um, I think for me personally, the worst bit of the job is when someone passes away. Like, um, I I thought I was getting better at it, um, but someone passed away uh, on Friday. Um, like, I watched them die, and I thought I was getting over it and like you know getting better with it. But I think it really does knock you. Hmm. I think that is hmm. the worst part. Yeah, definitely. And and how, how do you have a way of sort of coping with that, or or just is it just chatting to people, or just sort of running through in your mind? Hmm. I think I think it's really important to chat to people. Um, like when it happened on Friday, uh, a registrar that I've become quite good friends with found me, and like I had a little cry. And I think I think that's also another thing. It's okay to have a little cry every hmm. now and then. I'm hmm. not saying that the job's miserable, but sometimes you do bottle up these emotions and i think sure. it's important to talk to your colleagues especially ones you've become mates with yeah um, yeah i yeah i think it's important to not bottle it up personally i'm terrified of making mistakes what are some common mistakes to be aware of on the wards biggest mistake is always coming from uh drug charts mm. which is really interesting because you know we're, we're still on a paper chart basis and you lose the hospitals are moving on to electronic prescribing and then, but on the drug chart basis you know, we, we've done our uh, PSA exams now, so we know, you know we should be on top of our game. But it's still so funny how many common mistakes you get. You know, mm. Something as simple as not giving uh, a route or not sure. circling how often you want it to be given or just even signing your name away. It's just these kind of small mistakes. And so often I'll get bleeped uh, from a nurse, you know, can you come and correct this? Can you just circle this? Um, mm. Are you sure you want to give... Uh, these two drugs together and you know they, they're just like common mistakes that you'd think oh yeah. wait actually we've we've done this again and again yeah and yeah, again. yeah and sure. it's probably the most common mistake that i'd probably pick out from any f1 actually there's nothing mm. that you can't learn on the job mm. and equally with practical skills and stuff there's nothing you can't learn and you will get better because you're doing it all more you, sure. yeah. you know you can't avoid it i think it's being assertive um 
you know sometimes there are non-urgent jobs that can wait and when you're trying to book leave and things or you're trying to work out who your new road coordinator is mm. you don't need to be apologetic about it those are things that you have a right to know and be able to do the night does finish um the day team does arrive uh, the handover does happen um I, and, and you are allowed to hand over jobs mm. yeah i think that i was always afraid of of giving i thought if ever i had to hand over something i'd done a bad shift or i'd failed at my shift hmm. and that's that, that's not true um it, everyone expects uh, stuff to be handing over and that's absolutely fine given that final year students are going to be starting jobs in the next week or so what do the doctors think are the most important things to go over before starting the job i think one of the most common i wouldn't say maybe emergencies but a common cause that gets people quite worried is around blood sugars yeah uh, and it's kind of knowing that if someone's got a low blood sugar just knowing the kind of protocol and the guidance to go through. Mm. Uh, have a look at your trust guidance, have a look at the NICE guidance. But for example, if someone's got a low blood sugar in hospital, you're gonna to need to be looking at their consciousness level. If they're conscious, trying to avoid going down the IV route. Mm. Uh, if they are able to kind of get some oral intake, use some sugary drinks, uh, make sure they do actually have sugar in. I've seen some people give Coke Zero. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Get, make sure you're giving proper uh, jelly babies, uh, giving the actual sugar, um, trying to avoid the IV route, but don't be afraid if they have if they have impaired conscious level, if they're not able to eat or swallow, mm-hmm. is knowing that you need to give uh, IV dextrose. Especially in your first week, you get called to deal with a, uh, a CBG of 100, not 100, that's like said, but a CBG of like 30, and you think, oh crap, what do I do with mm-hmm. a blood sugar of 30? Um, and actually, it's it, you know it's quite simple. I can say this having been an F1 in diabetes, so I'm I'm quite okay with it with most diabetes stuff. But I think you know just think about the fact that you need to understand what is the blood sugar at this moment in time, mm-hmm. what is um, their ketones, because you need to rule out that they're not in DK, regardless if they're type one or type two diabetics. You need to think about um, these two hand in hand. Mm-hmm. So when you get called to ask to see a patient, think about these two hand in hand think about you know what type of diabetes do they have and whether insulin needs to be started mm. um, if they already on insulin um, then it's likely you just need to give them a top up of their um, act up and over rapid depending on your kind of uh, trust guidelines um, mm. but it's probably one of the most common things i get called about is can you come and see this patient about um, their blood sugars mm. secondly is probably um, aki related mm. a lot of times again it's just common things that you need to think about um have a look have they you know is it pre-renal renal or post-renal just try and divide it into these things you know mm. are they hypervolemic do you need to top up the, the kind of fluids do you need to stop anything in the drug charts um is there something that's blocking you know the urine from coming out so it's just dividing into these simple things so when you're on the ward there's always someone to ask when you're on calls and things the most common things i've been asked to go and see are chest pain Falls reviews, they're really common, especially mm. about six in the morning when everyone starts waking up. Mm. Um, high and low blood sugars. Mm. But what I would say is you're not going to be able to revise every emergency or remember it. Mm. But every single patient that I'm asked to go and see on a night, just do an A to E. Yeah. You feel like a bit of a prat sometimes, but just do an A to E because you'll cover everything. Yeah. And then even if you don't know what on earth is wrong, if you've done an A to E, and come up with something vaguely sensible like maybe let's get some obs and i'll put a cannula in and take some bloods off 
at least then when you call the reg to be mm. like honestly i don't know you've yeah. got something to say mm. dealing with knights is another intimidating prospect lots of medical students want to know how to deal with how should we prepare for them and what tips and tricks are there for surviving nights before my first night shift i was so anxious i was so scared about night shifts i don't know why i think just everyone talks about how terrible a night shift is mm. so you do get it into your head and you ruminate quite a lot it's mm. like oh my god it's gonna be the worst thing ever um i think it really is important to try and sleep before a night shift mm. i know it's easier said than done but my first night shift ever i didn't sleep during the day and I went to bed quite early the night before so I ended up being up for about 36 hours mm, mm. and by the end of the night you're just so so exhausted mm. try and if you're not living near the hospital always make sure you've booked accommodation most hospitals legally now have to um, ensure that you've got accommodation if you're on call um, right. so I live like an hour away from my hospital so I never drive after never drive after a night shift so I think for night shifts and kind of preparing for night shifts, it's an incredibly personal um, and kind of it's incredibly personal and it's working out what works for you. So for me, I don't particularly work well if I the day before a night shift, I'll, I don't particularly stay up late. I, I try and make sure that my kind of transition is a bit more gradual. So the, the night, if I finish at, say, 5 p.m. Uh, from a normal shift and I've got a night shift the next day, I won't try and stay up to six o'clock the next morning seven o'clock the next morning i'll probably just try and catch up on some things that i need to do just relax watch some tv try and sit a little bit later but nothing nothing extreme and then the next day no no alarm set no alarm make sure that my environment's set up quite well so my room we've got my blinds down uh it's quite nice and quiet the temperature is the right temperature uh, i've got my eye mask on then putting some hearing plugs mm. and then set no alarm and just sleep in as long as possible the next day personally i the night before will try and stay up as late as possible so i'll stay up till sort of three in the morning maybe just watching films relaxing i'll probably have a coffee at like 10 at night to try and keep myself awake mm. and just you know have a nice chill evening watching films getting all cozy then i'll try and sleep in as late as possible you'll only manage it till about midday then just have a really like lovely lazy day like watch a bit of netflix maybe have a little walk yeah. Because you're going to have to stay up all night. The first night is a bit grim. You're going to feel a little bit rubbish. About four in the morning, everyone crashes. Four in the morning, you need to put on a big hoodie, have a cup of coffee and find someone to have a chat with. So it seems like everyone has a different routine for coping with nights. And we'll need to just see how it works when we start. I'm sure that's the same for staying organised on the wards. But I wonder if there's any key ways to maximise organisation and prioritisation of jobs. When you first start on the job, you will end up prioritizing everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's just natural. But I think as time goes on, you kind of learn to like, you know, push these things onto the what can be held on and what can't be held on. Mm -hmm. um, giving a patient update, you know, if if a patient asks, you know, at eleven o'clock at night, they want an update on the situation. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's acutely and they've just been admitted, fair enough that there isn't a lot that's happened, so you probably could update them quite well. But you know, if it's something that they've been here for the last four weeks they just want a general update mm. 11 o'clock at night for you to speed read what's going on through the notes probably not the best thing to be able to do you could probably have a look at the last day or so and you know, give them an update what's happened recently but some of these things that you realize actually this is probably better one for the day team to to do or two when there's more staff that they mm. can do it well. i think during your induction week is probably the best week to try and pick it up but it's just to know how things work on the ward 
Mm-hmm. I think the worst thing you can ever do is uh, turn up and think you can change this or you can do it in your set ways because actually you are joining on a system that's been working for however long. So you, you don't want to make any draft changes that you, you know, that you might expect to make, but just rock up and see how the day-to-day bits work. Wardown starts at 9 a.m., Walk up a little bit beforehand and see how the F1 there kind of preps it. From you, know, you something as simple as knowing where to get paper continuation sheets, mm. something as simple as uh, knowing where DNA CPR forms are. You know, just having these aspects ready so that when day one rocks up and they say, "Okay, Katon uh, says, have we discussed DNA CPR? Do we have a, a form ready?" Mm. It's not the fact that you're carrying every single thing on you, but it's the fact that you know where you can go roughly to go and find these. So sometimes you're quite unlucky and have a consultant who will, before you've gotten any of the notes and anything prepared, be talking to patients mm. and you're running around trying to find everything. Of course, you can't find the drug chart. I'm, I'm quite unlucky that my hospital still paper notes and paper drug charts. So trying to run around after like the consultant can be a bit hectic at times. Mm. I think usually you're not on a ward round by yourself, at least not in surgery. I think it's quite typical. There's a big group of you. I think it's important that you've got your list and your list is in order of where the patients are. Mm-hmm. So uh, on surgery, patients are all over the hospital. So make sure all my patients on one ward are like all together so that you're like reading it in order. Yeah. Um, I also have pens in like different colors. Um, so like a red pen or something, for example, just to, I don't know, when I'm writing the jobs, write the most important jobs in red where it's like this, right, this has to sure, be done straight sure, away. Yeah and then everything else in a different color. Um, I keep a little, because I don't usually have pockets, I try and keep a little bag with me. Mm. Um, But if you wear trousers, usually that's not a problem. But I think just making sure you've got your bleep, making sure you've got your badge, stethoscope. Mm. I always forget my stethoscope in my bag, but um, I usually keep a roll of tape also on my stethoscope because Mm. if you're bleeding a patient, you can never find a roll of tape. Personally, I went in five minutes early and had just written out the ward list before ward round started. Mm. So we tended to have a board round before the ward round. So we'd meet up, chat about all the patients before we went to see them. So in that, you get a good idea of who everyone is, what's going on, and you can jot down the initial jobs then. You have to keep a jobs list Mm. because otherwise you will miss stuff. It's difficult to keep organised on on calls and things. But I think if you are organized, you'll know when your workload's getting to the point where you can't manage it. Mm. And that's the point you need to go and tell someone that you're not going to get through all those jobs. Mm. And what about those situations where you feel out of your depth and need help from a senior? It's often a concern at the start that you're you're raising too many things. Mm. But I think it's, it's quite reassuring to know that that's absolutely fine. It's absolutely fine to raise a lot of things. And that's completely the better direction to go than not escalating things which do need yeah it's always easier to sort things out it's always easier to call the car uh, call the crash call for someone where they might not need it than mm. the other way around mm. um it's always it's always better for you the team for the patients to escalate things and at the start people are expecting it, it it's okay yeah um they, they're kind of they are waiting um and they're happy to take those calls but when you do escalate things, and for example, if you escalate something which they later say you might not, you might be being able to manage it on your own, is take it as a learning experience and kind of learn from every one of these. What kind of skills and what kind of knowledge have you learned from this? That means actually, if this, if, if I saw this in the future, yeah, I'll be happy to deal with it on my own again. I think the worst thing you can do 
um, is leave uh, a point of escalation too far down the line. You know, this patient had been seen 10 minutes earlier by the reg probably would have made a, a uh, a quicker difference kind of thing mm-hmm. they i think registrars understand you know they've all been there and they've all gone to that point they'd rather that you ask them for help if you're struggling rather than just leaving it sure. at the point where it's drowning we've talked a lot about the ins and outs of fy1 life but something i'm sure everyone's curious about is whether maintaining a work-life balance is easier or harder than it has been at medical school um it's just similar to med school but a bit easier if anything i mm. think Obviously, sometimes you're doing nights or weekends and then it's more difficult, but you've got a whole new group of people to hang out with and do stuff with because you've got all the F1s and F2s. And also, you can do your hobbies relatively easily. Um, Occasionally, you'll miss them because of your shifts or whatever. Um, But you don't have to do any work when you're not at work. That's so nice. Yeah. Which is great. So when you come home, that's it. You can stop working. Yeah. You don't have to like revise. So your evenings and weekends are suddenly your own again. Yeah. Which I found really great actually because you can completely switch off from work. Mm. So when you're not there, you're absolutely not there and you don't have to think about it. Mm. So you can actually do more in the evenings. You can go out for dinner, you can do your hobbies, sport, music, whatever. I do a lot of singing and that's been absolutely fine. Mm. It's I've preferred it to being a medical student in the sense now that uh, we're getting paid like yeah, it's, it's quite big, nice to a... have some money yeah yeah very <laughs> it's nice it's not all about the money but like i think last year of medical school is quite tricky because you know you've got that nhs bursary which doesn't cover a lot mm, mm. um but work life balance it it is it does take a lot of adjustment it's nice because your evenings you have your evenings free now mm, whereas mm. like you know in med school you were coming home after a day of lectures or placement having to revise for a good few hours yeah so it's nice you got your evenings free the problem is like me personally pretty much all my friends are doctors so Mm. trying to find any time to meet up is quite tricky Mm. and also having a partner who's also an f1 in a different hospital um means we we hardly ever see each other but i think instead of like moping about it and being like oh i'm never seeing my friends i'm never seeing like my other half i think when you do have days off together or when all your friends you know you find a a weekend where you are free it's just Mm. making the most of it Mm. it's always difficult moving to a new area and i appreciate that for a lot of people starting their jobs it'll be in an area that they're not used to for example Mm. might be in a different town or city of a part of the country it's knowing that it's useful knowing that a lot of other f1s are in the same position yeah and at the start of f1 everyone's very kind of accepting that they're going to meet new people but you are going to make friends with new people you're going to make friends in 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 new regions and new cities around the country Mm. and that's absolutely fine and what about time off so you get 27 days off I think I think it well maybe 28 I think it's nine and a half days each rotation Mm -hmm. if you work a bank holiday you get it back in lieu Mm -hmm. and on medicine if you worked a long day on a bank holiday you got an extra day and a half but I don't think it works that way in surgery um you (laughs) on medicine I felt like I had enough time off because I didn't work as many weekends on surgery Mm -hmm. some of the weeks can be quite intense but Holiday, what you usually do is you can't book holiday if you're working an on-call day or you're working a night um, and you can book it on like your normal working days. Mm. Um, usually there has to be a set number of juniors on the ward. So if if you want to book a, an annual leave but too many people have also taken that day and you weren't the first one to ask, usually it's mm. declined. 
you know, most rotor coordinators are actually there to help you out. And as long as you give them enough notice, they will help you. Mm. But also your other F1s and junior doctors are nice people. Yeah. If you need to swap with someone, someone will swap with you. Mm. You know, everyone gets their birthday off. If it's a big event like a wedding or whatever, you, you have to have that off if mm. you give them six weeks notice. Mm. But for holidays and stuff, people have always swapped. So, yes, it's annoying. Yes, mm. it's more difficult than it should be. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. But you'll get it, so yeah. don't panic. People are nice. We've miraculously gone 20 minutes without a mention of COVID-19. I asked the doctors how their jobs have changed in response to the pandemic and therefore how it might affect us. Logistically, it's become a nightmare. Um, you know, we are running effectively, at least in my hospital, we're running an on-call rotor for the next four months. You know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. we're working on no longer normal working days as such, but uh, we're just working on calls non-stop. Um, so I think importantly, you've got to protect yourself um, mentally and physically. You know, these are tough times. You are dealing with situations you never deal with. I'm, you know, I'm breaking bad news is now becoming a common thing, unfortunately. Um, uh, there was, you know, last week before I had to have the sick period, I, I probably confirmed eight or nine patients, uh, sorry, verified deaths of, of COVID patients eight or nine times in the space of two days, you know. Um, so you've got to protect yourself mentally. Um, everyone has their own different coping strategies, um, but find the one that works for you. Physically, you've got to look after yourselves. Um, there's a lot of this uh, perspective of um, putting in the extra shifts to help out uh, colleagues or whatever it might be, but actually you've, you've also got to realise, you know, you've worked the last seven days in a row, you need to have this day off or, or, or that aspect because there's no point you working yourself into the ground and then, uh, becoming unavailable because you're sick as a result mm-hmm. of it. I think coming into work in this environment, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. I think it, I, I imagine coming into it, it's incredibly scary, but there's also knowing that this isn't a normal time. Yeah. Um, and knowing that these are extraordinary measures are being put in place, but there is that support available and mm-hmm. people are incredibly appreciative of the fact that you will be coming into work at the start of your career in, in this environment mm-hmm. and there is going to be a lot of support for you uh, and a lot of understanding for that. Uh, I, I, I would try and make sure that you, you know all your escalation plans and know who you need to be kind of contacting um, just so that you do know if, if stuff really does start to hit the fan, you know who to ask for help for all rotations have been cancelled mm, yeah they're starting to redeploy people to different departments but obviously that means that right now we don't really have rotors we don't really know where we're working so things like booking annual leave that is really really difficult mm. um so they've told us to remain flexible which is not super helpful but the trouble is is that the situation's changing daily yeah. so they're trying to update us when they can but it's really hard So after all that, if you're still feeling pretty nervous about starting work, which I definitely am and I think is completely normal, here is a final pep talk from Kitty and Jess. I think honestly just try not to panic. Um, It is a weird time to come in, but everyone was so lovely when we first arrived. Like People expect almost nothing of you, Mm. so everything you do is sort of a bonus in a way. Um, Everyone's so nice to you. They remember how it feels to be an F1 asking for help is never stupid like don't feel worry about stuff 
I was really panicked because my practical skills weren't the best when I started. So I was super worried about being asked to do 20 cannulas and not being able to do any of them. Hmm. But it's all fine. I think I think just that it it your first month as a doctor is going to be it is terrifying. I think I'm I'm a very very anxious person. So like the the cup the weeks before becoming a doctor, I was like, oh my goodness, I am not mm. looking forward to this. Mm. But it's a very it is a very rewarding job. I think I think F1's got quite a reputation of being something you just got to get through, and it's terrible, mm. and you're mm. not going to like it, and no one likes it. But I, I'm really enjoying it. Like I'm, I'm enjoying going. I'm looking forward to going to work. Like on my days off, I am kind of missing work. And if you'd asked me this month, a couple of months ago, I would have said like, no way. Mm. Like I'm not enjoying this. But I think six months. It takes about six months for me personally. It took me about six months to really settle in, which I know sounds like a, a long time, mm. but it really does fly by. Like I can't believe I've been a doctor now for eight months. Mm. Um, it's crazy, but it is a rewarding job. It's hard. And sometimes you, you're not going to enjoy it, but you you can't expect to enjoy it every day. But just keep at it. It's you've worked really hard for this. Like if you think you've done at least five, six years, mm. like it is all worth it in the end. I'm I'm really enjoying it, and I'm I'm not the most optimistic person. <laughs> you've sold the job. <laughs> I've had two days off. <laughs> but no, it's a good job. I'm enjoying it. Those are my final words. <laughs> <laughs> this is Jeff signing out. <laughs> Thank you so much to Elgin, Kitty, Edwin and Jess for their really useful insight into life as an F1. And also thank you for listening. I really hope your first few months are as stress-free as can be during these unprecedented times. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more from us, please consider subscribing through your podcast provider. You can also follow Geeky Medics on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. We'd love to hear from you for suggestions on who you'd like to hear from next. As ever, thank you to the producers of this podcast, Dr. Alice Appleton and Dr. Lewis Potter.